our podcast should you choose to accept it. They said that like six times in this movie. Did you think they said it a lot in this movie? It's the signature thing. If you don't say it, is it even Mission Impossible? I know, but they said it more than like they were like, it's your mission should you choose to accept it. They have a lot of fun with that line, but I still don't understand what the rules are. You know what well, I mean? I, I feel like we learned more about the IMF this time because they really emphasize that they just leave messages for people. And you know what struck me? Unlike 007 and every other spy film, they never go to headquarters. Fascinating. They Every once in a while, they'll like infiltrate Langley as rogue agents, but they don't ever what headquarters? have like a headquarters headquarters is like a train car or, or some abandoned building There's or wherever cars they have to and be. stuff stashed around conveniently yeah. that's always nice yeah carlin on cinema snorkel today we're here to talk about mission impossible dead reckoning part one this mission of yours is gonna cost you The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Listen to me. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. Woo! What's with all these part ones? But I love it. Why they gotta do? It. Why they gotta do it that way? I was you mad. Know, they landed, they gave, they landed the train. Literally. Womp womp. No, actually on that point, I, I read somewhere that the studio was like, leave him on a cliffhanger, Tom. Leave him on a cliffhanger. And Tom yeah. Cruise said, no, we're not going to do that. Oh. We're going to leave people with a satisfying part one. He's a man of the people. We want them to just come back. Yeah. They said they never assumed the audience had seen another Mission Impossible movie in any of them. They all kind of can work on their own. They have this really great rhythm, which is why Casey... My honest opinion is that the Mission Impossible film series is the greatest film series of all time. Are you kidding me? No. That what no. of all time? No. I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. And the reason why is because it houses Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol, which is my favorite movie ever, bar none. Oh, uh, okay. That's fair. That's fair. That's a great I one. Could watch That's it. the one where they're on the tower. I could watch it a hundred times. Yeah, he climbs that super tall hotel tower that's super famous. Yeah. But, but there's lots of reasons to love this series. Name a few. Um, I'm so glad you asked. Well, for one, everything, they use as as little CG as possible. In fact, they in every subsequent film, they're using less CGI than in the last one. Cool. They're like leaning hard into practical effects, which we've said this before and we'll say it again right now. Practical effects win the day. Like, okay, the the highlight stunt of the, there's kind of usually like a big stunt. Right. That's a, that's an eye catcher. The big jump where Ethan drives his motorcycle over a cliff. Right. 
and then parachutes out of it. Do you know how they filmed that? How? Tom Cruise got on a motorcycle and drove it off a cliff into a parachute freefall. Was there a green screen behind him, though? I felt there's got to be something. No, no, no. Come they on. They rehearsed it. They rehearsed it hundreds and hundreds of times. He did He did skydiving. He skydived like 3,000 times. He did motocross. He trained in motocross. Like, a, for like they said this stunt took like years to create. They didn't even have the technology to film it when they started initiating like the beginning phases of this stunt. Then they built, they built a physical ramp on location. Come on. That, on that a, is the real valley. On location? That's the real cliff. And then he literally, oh my gosh, he literally got on a motorcycle with nothing but a parachute. No. And dro- no harness? No. You can watch the footage of this happening. He You're drove kidding. a motorcycle off a cliff. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened in cinema. One time Tom Cruise said something in an interview. He's like, you know, what I do is probably about as dangerous as frontline soldiers in Afghanistan. And at the time I was like, Tom. That's a little <laughs> okay, arrogant. There's a time and a place, buddy. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, yeah, no, I respect our men and women in uniform. But, uh, you know, it's like what I do is just as dangerous. But that, that might be. I don't know. They shoot all these sequences for realsies and yeah. for peepsies. All right. That's a very good point. I like how Tom Cruise at the beginning of some of these recent movies has come on and been like, hey, thank you for watching this in a movie theater. <laughs> yeah. like, he's like, we put a lot of work into it. I'm like, okay, I can appreciate that. It's not too long or overbearing. It's just a good thing to add. Just pointing us to the, the hard work they actually do put into these. Yeah, and it is like a, it's a labor of love mm, for him. He mm. really loves movies, and he loves stories, and he and he loves the audience, and he's always, um, like if you watch interviews, he's always just going back and thinking like, is this really landing? Is this really playing well to the audience? Are they, is this going to be interesting to them? Are they going to be yeah. captured? And if it's not working, they'll change. They'll like figure it out. It's not about this precious process or this yeah. like artist vision. They really just love the craft. And they're they're looking for this synergy between the actors. They they have an all star cast, and they want to see the actors perform well, and they want to see like everything come together. And and they're just willing to put hours and hours and dollars into these sequences. And I just yeah. think it sings. It's I good. Think it sings. It it is good. It is good. I went in kind of like, oh my gosh, this is like the tenth Mission Impossible or whatever. Seventh. Actually. Yeah, that's what I meant. But you know, like hyperbolically, it's like the tenth. You know, it's like I I lost track. I don't even. You know, it's like I don't even care. Seven. I was so uh, yeah. Like the action does not feel. Uh, it just feels like meaningful action every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they keep doing that because. Right, like after a certain number of these movies, it's like you feel like we've seen all the stunts. Yeah, and like. Pure action movies, you know, okay, whatever, there's a, there are a dime a dozen. But somehow all the action in the Mission Impossible movies feels meaningful and it feels grounded. I'll tell you why. why? I, I think I have a theory why. Tell me why. Because even though the stunts escalate in their just mind-boggling awesomeness, the plot and the power and the enemy and the MacGuffin and all the stuff in the plot doesn't necessarily escalate. So it's not bloated. In every movie, we're getting a deeper understanding of each character, and we we have more history to kind of back that up. But I really think the stakes feel real because the characters remain grounded, and the world remains grounded and and believable. Right. <laughs> With if you turn off some parts of your brain, like, hey, we just whipped together an analog bunker. These are using like TV <laughs> tubes. It's all analog, and then they're pulling up these HD. <laughs> 
like multi-screen image. Yeah. Well, we had to use like 10 computers instead of just one big one. <laughs> but trust me, it's all analog. No, this it, is radio it tubes. It sings. It <laughs> You're sings. like, okay. All um, right. Or Benji has to disarm a bomb using some tweezers that he found. Yeah, he in just a... rips open the suitcase. <laughs> okay, I have a little game for you. Would you okay, like to play what this is, game? Yeah, I would love to play this game. Okay. Whatever it is, I'm in. I'm sorry I'm hogging the mic on this. I just, but like I said, this is my favorite yeah. film Come series. Come on, let's do it. A-O-T. That stands for of all time. Okay, we're going to play a little game called Did It Happen in Every Mission Impossible Movie or Not? Okay, okay. It's a, it's a, it's a true or false game. All right, okay? I'm so ready for this. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, true or false, did it happen in every Mission Impossible film? The government turns on Ethan and the team. Yes, it happens Correct. in every single one. Correct. I just watched the first one last night. That definitely happens. <laughs> yes, it happens in every single Mission Impossible movie. Okay. Number okay. two, someone wears a mask. Yes. Yeah, that's a little bit of a low ball. That's like yeah, a right. that's like an iconic thing in the franchise. It it really only happens in this universe, and it happens in every movie. That's so true. Okay. Uh, number two, the audience is fooled by a mask. Not just the characters. The audience is fooled by a mask. Yes. What does that mean? False. Tell me more about what that means. For instance, we don't see the character putting on the mask and we know what's going on. Oh. We There's a moment where a character pulls off a mask and reveals. And we're like, oh my God. We're, we're the ones being fooled. Yeah. I'm going to say yes. That happens in every single one. Correct. That yeah! happens in every single Mission Impossible. Although I'm I on to, a roll. I have to give a disclaimer. I don't always know about Mission Impossible 2 because it's the only one that I don't rewatch. Oh, uh, I can answer that because I watched it a couple years ago. It's oh, so good. silly. <laughs> it's incredibly silly. I remember a lot of slow motion uh, motorcycle chases. A lot of wow. slow motion everything. They're yeah. just walking and they're like, slow it down. <laughs> slow it down. Oh, 2000s. Make it look 2000s. awesome. But it opens with this spectacular sequence of Ethan free soloing these red cliffs in the middle of like Utah. And it is a great sequence. And why? And why because is he doing that? He... <laughs> Don't ask questions. I Don't know in questions. every other action film I would be I would be annoyed. But for some reason in Mission Impossible, I'm they have me hooked. My wife and I just recently watched all of the Oceans movies. And I was zoning out hard after the first why one. pacing no it became predictable they uh. like ran they had one insanely good trick that they played on the first one nothing is as it seems but they left a little trail of easter eggs yeah. so that you could have you the feeling you get is that i could have known yeah. what's gonna happen could you have heck no but they make you feel exactly like you could have known in the second one things get a little loose and so the illusion of, oh, I could have seen that twist coming if I had just sure. paid close enough attention, pops like a balloon. And then it just becomes like, okay, you're just stringing together random clips of like erstwhile clever dialogue. Yeah. You know, George Clooney's great, but, you know, it's just like, it's the same formula. It just doesn't hit the same way as Ocean's Okay, 11, but you didn't zone one. out rewatching Mission Impossible movies. No, and that's the point. And that's the point. I don't know why either, Carlin. Because it's I'm so predictable. No, it's it's formulaic. This is why I love the series. Every other series is also formulaic, but Mission Impossible is formulaic on purpose. As I as I've already said, like all of these questions so far have been yes, present in all of the movies, and yet it it hits every time. Okay, back to the game. Um the the team goes on an unsanctioned mission. Yes. That's what they do. <laughs> every part of what they do is unsanctioned. Well, well yeah. And they even make okay. fun of it. They're like, "We're always going rogue." <laughs> 
And then, like, when Benji's defusing the bomb, he's like, why does it always come down to something like this? <laughs> okay, Ethan jumps onto a moving vehicle. Yes. Heck yes. That happens. That definitely happens. True. In Although I'm not entirely sure it happens in Mission Impossible 1. It does. I just watched it. He jumps onto a helicopter that's flying through a tunnel. Through a train tunnel. Remember, he jumps yeah, off yeah, the yeah. bullet and he... train and onto the helicopter. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, it's fun. This is just a trope. I'm not sure if it's in every one. But the guy on the motorcycle is actually a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually know if that's in all of them. Wiki, just, what? That wiki, just wiki, what? Okay. You call that the Samus trope because a generation of like gamer dudes were like, Samus is the coolest guy, so macho. And then they, the oh, developers Samus like, is a girl. Oh, at the end of the game, at the end of the game, they're like, it's a girl. And all these guys are like, what? I can't look. She's wearing this big beefy suit, so you would never know. My misogyny just got so challenged, bro. <laughs> I'm wrecked by this. Ugh. Okay. Technology fails at the critical moment. Yes. I'm going to just say yes to everything. Yes, 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 it does. Yes, it fails yes. at the critical moment. Technology fails at the critical moment. Every movie. Uh, okay, next. We have to go without masks. No. <gasps> Why do you say no? I don't know, because in the first one I just watched, they don't really have a moment where they're like, we're going in maskless. You're right. The only two I could confirm are MI4 and this one, MI7. They have to go in without masks. But it's a great, it's a great, because they've established that masks are so effective and so fun. Um, yeah. And there's this palpable tension when they're like, we have to just bet on whether or not the Mark has met me before. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Here's the last one. Um, right. Ethan hey, Hunt is, is the mask. It's an Ethan Hunt mask on another character. I, I don't think that happens in every single one. I think that only happens in a few. Correct. Actually, it only happens in Mission Impossible 2. So maybe there, maybe that's the reason why that movie ended up not being so good. See, here's... I love this game, by the way. Thank you for bringing it. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming with your homework done, yeah. uh, in essence. You brought... A, you did bring a snack to share with it. Never mind. <laughs> we're, we're cutting that out. No, we're that not. I like it. <laughs> yeah, but... Anyway, whatever, like, did you bring a snack to share or, like, a snack well, to share? We're, you know? all, we're all in agreement that snacks are the greatest thing. Yeah, like like actual snacks. No, like I'm not talking snack. about attractive people. I'm talking people. about, like, Nilla wafers. <laughs> <laughs> or animal crackers. I'm just worried our audience could get confused because snack has taken on a whole different range of meaning. Every word has now. taken on every range of meaning. Words are meaningless. Okay. Words are meaningless, except for those ones. And those ones. And those ones. And those ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh good the thing with mission impossible carlin and just everything you're saying i agree with i think why i like it is the audience walks in knowing what to expect it's in the title mission impossible we're yeah. gonna see something they set it up like this will be impossible for them to overcome yeah and somehow they find a way to do it and that's the fun within the formula they have enough variation to spice it up. We know a mask is coming. We don't know when. We know the mission is impossible, and they're going to do it. We don't know how. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and we don't and know then, what it's going to cost. Right. And so that gets into some of the themes that I think they're they're playing with. Sh shall we? Shall we? Shall, sh shall yes. we unpack some of these themes? After you. You know, with this movie, Carlin, uh, in its bones, it's an action movie, and there's a piece of it that, I'm just going to say this, and I want your honest opinion, because mm -hmm. maybe I'm wrong. There's a piece of it where they're, it feels like they're kind of weaving in some themes as maybe an afterthought. Do you no. think that's true? 
How could you? Oh, how okay. could you say a My criticism? Bad. I'm sorry, I said that. I'm sorry, sorry. I, I don't mean it. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. What what specific theme are you thinking of when you say that horrible, terrible criticism? One theme that came up that uh, I think is there as like a thematic element, but they're not taking it super seriously. Is is the future determined oh. by a powerful enough robot? There's a lot of lines about that. But does it actually impact anything? I mean, basically, Tom yeah. Cruise is like, it's not determined. Right. Well, it's an impossible you know. mission, and they're going to fix it. So it's clearly. But yeah, yeah, they do throw in a lot of stuff about um, your destiny is written. That's what the bad guy says all the time. Right. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to come kill you and your boss. That is written. You know, it's like, okay. I mean, did you ever believe for a minute, though, that that was the case? No. No, which is why I think it's almost, it's. It's like uh, frosting on the top that makes it sound yeah. really deep and philosophical. But in reality, that's that's just there to kind of just add some pop to the uh, to the dialogue. Sure. That's what I sure. think. I mean, there is this element where um, Luther pulls Ethan aside and says, look, I see two outcomes that the entity wants. Either you die and you can't stop it or you kill or you kill Gabriel and he's stacking the decks against um ethan's hate for gabriel by having gabriel kill the people that ethan loves and if if ethan kills gabriel which is another mission impossible trope you can't kill the (laughs) asset we need the asset no matter how much your feelings of anger are boiling over and you're a killing machine you can't kill the asset this is a side note i like that the most recent mission impossibles the good guys almost never use a gun they do a little bit in uh in the second that. to last one they made, they do use some guns, but the good guys are not. It's the one with Alec Baldwin. No, it's the one you're talking about, Ghost Protocol. There's guns and shooting, but the good guys Ghost like Protocol. almost never kill anyone with a gun. Can I tell you, here's a theme that I think, and, and also the reason why Ethan Hunt is a great hero. Why? It's, it's epitomized in the scene in Fallout where they're in Paris, and they open the garage. They're, they're sneaking a hostage into right. a car and they open the garage door and there's this french cop and she sees right she sees what's going on and this look of terror in her eyes like i have a duty to call this in and arrest like i'm watching a crime happen and ethan sees her and is like please don't call please don't like i don't want to have to hurt you right. i don't want to have to but we have to get away and then the the goonies show up and they're like gonna kill her and this guy's holding a gun to this girl's head and ethan doesn't know this girl but he knows she's just an innocent bystander and in a split moment of decision he just bang 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 shoots six of these goonies i'm gonna take back what i just said about the good guys almost never (laughs) using a gun i'm wrong he does shoot some goonies but he's like these are all obviously evil henchmen um but he is like will protect the innocents no matter what even when someone who's seen so much death and so much violence um but he will always go the extra mile to protect the people that are innocent yeah even if it means throwing this huge wrench in their plan and creating all this extra work for himself and risk carlin it does lead to a big theme that i noticed with the mission impossibles which is the team versus the mission okay expound well, in this one, they had dialogue. Ethan says, I can't save everyone, but your life will always matter to me more than my own. I promise you that. Yeah, and she says, I, you don't even know me. And he says, why would that change anything? Right. 
I just think that's part of the motif. So like with Ethan Hunt, in the first one, they barely introduce his character at all. Mm-hmm. He's just like the operative under this main guy, Jim. And if you've seen any of the old 60s TV show, you, you know that there's the main guy uh, in the Mission Impossible, and then he always gathers a team, right? Yeah. And they, they always, always have the opening montage of him selecting from these files who's going on that episode's mission, uh-huh. right? So if you're familiar with that, then Ethan's just like one of the young, uh, awesome, like just team members who are good team players yeah. in the first Mission Impossible. Then he turns out to be the protagonist. Uh, yeah. But they don't really introduce his character too much because it doesn't matter. But what they've essentially done, is they just assume he's going to do the right thing. Uh-huh. And that's become his, like Ethan's character of doing the right thing is not the question. The question is what yeah. he's going to have to overcome to keep that promise. Yes. Yes. That's the and tension. And he'll have to overcome like his own personal feelings of vengeance. Or right. he'll have to make a hard choice about is is he going to sacrifice one member for another? Or right. is he going to, is he going to trade the, um, the, the artifact, whatever it is that their mission right. is to get one of his team members back. And that also happens in, you guessed it, every single movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. But you're right. That's never a question whether Ethan's, well, there is a question of whether or not his revenge has overcome him because in Ghost Protocol, he's gonna kill and in, Gabriel. in every again yeah. in every movie, somehow it's in every movie, um, in every movie that somebody questions. Okay, wait, has he gone too far? Have we pushed him too far? Has the government disavowed him too many times? Is he finally gonna crack like all those other rogue agents before him, and start doing the wrong thing? Um, or is he going to blindly follow his government just like uh, other agents that have done so before him? Uh, and no, he every time he does the he right thing. He comes back to his moral center, true north, which is probably why uh, they don't never say this, but it's it's why we, the audience, trust him. And it's also probably why the IMF would theoretically in this world choose to trust him as well. Yeah. Uh, one quick side quest for us um, is that with all the trust and mistrust, I feel like it's especially important with the movie's relationship to the audience because there are things that we need to trust. Otherwise, the stakes get right. lowered, right? Like, we have to trust that Benji's a good guy and we have to trust that um, Ethan's a good guy. Uh, except for when they play us against it. But yeah, there's certain things that we have to just take for granted. But they keep... They repeatedly break the things they break our trust in a in a in a manner by you know playing masks right or by having there be rogue agents or the you know the director's a mole or whatever like they repeatedly break the audience's trust and yet somehow the stakes still feel believable how do you think they strike that balance uh i don't know <laughs> For instance, this is the first time that Benji's voice gets overlaid by the entity. And for the first time, Ethan can't trust Benji because it's right, not Benji right. talking anymore. Their technology is betrayed. Right. Yeah, that's that was a, that was another theme I was going to bring up, which is who can you trust? I think there's I think they're really serious about that one. Right from the first movie, mm. they they've always asked that question, who can you really trust? Yeah. So, yeah. I want to get to their answer to that question, Carlin. How, how do they resolve that question of who can you trust? Huh. They'll play with your trust, but by the end of the movie, we're pretty much, we know who we can trust. So, like, what they land on is 
if you're proven to do the right thing in the critical moments, then you're trustworthy. Mm. And the right thing is usually some sort of personal sacrifice mm. for the greater yeah. good. Would you say that's I think accurate? that's dead right. And I think in this particular movie, the person who represents trust or that, that question, who can you trust, is Grace. Oh, yeah. Say more. She comes in. She doesn't trust any of them. She really doesn't trust them at yeah. all. Uh, Tom Cruise makes the mistake of trusting her a few times and she yeah. kind of double crosses, but not in a yeah, like maleficent twice. way, right? She's just a sneaky pickpocket who kind of gets away with it. And then um, Ilsa essentially gives her life to save Grace because there's that whole monologue where wow. the entity's like, I've chosen one of you to die, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. Ooh. And I'm definitely not going <laughs> to kill both of you because, you know, why would I do that? I don't, I don't know. I, I just feel like killing it's- one. Felt cute, might delete later, <laughs> might just kill one. Uh, and so uh, Tom Cruise is going to do the impossible thing, going back to the team versus the mission. He's going to try to uh-huh. save everybody. Ilsa and Ethan Hunt are going to fight, and he says to Grace, run, because he sees that she's the weaker one. Yeah. Well, it ends up that Grace is going to be the one to die. But Ilsa hears the radio transmission falsely yeah. leading Ethan away, and Ilsa shows up at the bridge to fight Gabriel yeah. And gives her life yes. essentially for grace. And that's a turning point for grace. After that, they kind of have that come to Jesus moment where they're like, uh, Ilsa, I don't know, she gave her life for you. And Tom Cruise says that like, I can't save everyone, but your life will come before mine. And grace is like, you don't even know me, you know, all that. And then from that yeah. point on, grace chooses to trust the IMF team. But the real moment is on the train for grace uh-huh. where she chooses uh-huh. to reciprocate the trust She's sitting across from Kittredge, who we find out is the buyer, right? And she Uh could put in her own bank account info, take the $100,000, and just get off scot-free with protection from the government. Yeah, right. But she declines the payment at the last minute, just Uh showing that she trusts now Ethan Hunt. She's a member of the team. She's worthy of the trust. She's like in the trust circle of good guys who always do the good thing. Yes, and you think the critical moment is Ilsa gives her life for her. I think so. Don't you? And Luther, well, she says, uh, I totally do. And here's why. Because she says, she's dead because I'm alive. And Luther corrects her and says, no, you're alive because she's dead. Yeah. Wow, he reverses not- it. It was like an intentional mm-hmm. choice from Ilsa. Wow. Yeah. She sacrificed for you, so don't waste her sacrifice. Wow. It's not chance. It's it's love, really. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? Tis. Almost like Ilsa breaks the determinism of the algorithm with an act of selflessness Ooh. that the algorithm Ooh. wasn't counting on. Hmm? Whoa. I don't know if they boil it down quite that distinctly, but feels right. Feels right. I guess we'll find out in the second part. So, yeah. Okay, let's go back to the determinism. Do you think that's just like icing and set dressing? Oh, yeah. I was going to say with that, I think it definitely speaks to the audience. <laughs> You know, each of these movies is made at a different time. The first one was 1996. Yeah. So they're like uh, set dressing they're playing with. Although I I recently had someone correct me and say set dressing is only props. Okay. You can't be using that term. (laughs) We're using it metaphorically, dude. Whoever you are that said that. (laughs) It was a high school kid. We're talking poetically. Uh, But he knew his stuff. When you say the sun rises, what do you mean? Do you actually mean the sun rises in the sky? <laughs> Does the sun actually rise? 
It's the earth that's turning. You dummy. <laughs> no, this kid knew his stuff, and I appreciated that helpful comment. Okay, we're going to still use it, though. <laughs> it's like, I think it's like plot set dressing. So like in the first one, they're, they're talking about a post-Soviet world where the impossible mission force isn't really needed because they were the big bad in the TV show. Right. And now we're dealing with different threats. So the, it just hits home that an AI algorithm might be determining every part of who we are. Anyone paying attention yeah. in the modern world is like pretty afraid of that. And so I think it just lands yeah. with the audience. Yeah. Because we don't really know how powerful AI is. No, we don't. Like works of creative fiction might not be that creative. Like they might actually just be pr like predictive. There's a phrase that the artists get there first. So um, I think that's from yeah. Steve Garber. Uh, but he just, artists get there first. They're thinking about the hard problems of human life. And they arrive at, to ponder these questions before the rest of us, usually. As a quick subplot, um, did you know that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle basically invented modern detective work with his Sherlock Holmes series? No. Yeah. Before that, Scotland Yard, basically, they, if they didn't have an eyewitness, they, that's it. What That's a bunch of buffoons. Had. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was like, well, what if we just start like looking around, you know? And then they started finding evidence and they started building like modern day detectives. Artists get there first. Thank you, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I know. He saved so many people. He saved the well, day, dare I say. So all that to say, the future determined and who can you trust feel like they go together because the impossibility that they're setting up as the antagonist in this one is a world in which AI controls everything, right? And it, it's not yeah. just who can you trust on an interpersonal level, it's also what can you know about the truth, right? And they have plenty of lines about that. Like Kittredge is like, this is our chance to control the truth. The concepts of yeah. right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting for an ideal that doesn't exist, it never did, you need to pick a side instead. So essentially, like, huh. in a world where technology can manipulate things so much, there is no truth, there's only power. What do you think the movie means by that? Do you think the movie is actually equating truth with, uh, like, technology and, and its ability to control your perception of reality? See, again, for an action movie, some of these lines actually hit really home for their audience. Um, because we're living in, some people have said, a post-truth society. And what they're demonstrating is a clash of worldviews. On mm -hmm. one hand, all these cynical intelligence people, their real goal is power. You know, mm -hmm. like at the very end, there's not Kittredge, but there's other, that other guy, Denlinger. And uh -huh. he's like, you know, they're in the train compartment and he's like, because you know, <laughs> the greater good. You know, and he says yeah, it all right. like... Uh, that was a little, it's was like a you little thick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but they are illustrating, you know, in a heavy-handed way, where that philosophy of we can control what's true will lead yeah. you. And the yeah. reason why it lands, Carlin, is that that's a real strain within philosophy. In fact, it hmm. might even be the dominant strain in philosophy in our world. Wow. Has it always been that way? No. I mean, you have waves of philosophy crashing over the Western world. One of the biggest ones was modernism, which was uh -huh. essentially like, uh, well, first you had the Enlightenment rationalists, and they were like, we can just know what's true through pure logic and reason, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. gave birth to modernism, where they're like, yes, and we can advance society to the point where it will solve all of our problems, uh -huh. right? Through pure logic. After the two world wars, where that didn't pan out so good, 
a lot of right. people were like, okay, well now we're post-modernists and truth is not such a crystal clear idea. What they, what they were afraid of is essentially like Hitler, who was like, I have the truth and I'm gonna blow up anyone else who disagrees with me. And so lots the, of people who bought into that. Right. So, but then the postmodernists were like, none of us can know truth. Truth is an internal thing. You need to be gentle and respectful of other people's truth. Well, some people took that a lot farther. So like even reaching back a little bit to the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche says there is no truth. There's only power. There's no good mm -hmm. and evil. There's only power. In fact, one of his key concepts is the will to power is the only thing that we can actually count on in this world. There's no like objective reality out there. It's just the world is just what you make of it, right? Can I ask a question? You may. You would think that after someone like Hitler or Stalin or Mao or all these like scary dictators that happened, you would think that it would be clearer to people that there is a right or wrong, and just because you say it's right doesn't make it right. Come on. Well, that's what they argued at the Nuremberg trials where they convicted all these Nazis. The Nazis were like, we, were, we didn't know better. We were just following orders. And they convicted them of crimes against humanity because they said, you did know better. Human beings are answerable to natural law and a higher power mm. than mm. just your immediate superiors. All human beings have this moral compass at their center. We can know right from wrong. And, mm. and you, uh, what really condemned them were the Germans, the good Germans who stood up to their culture, right? But Carlin, that's the clash of worldviews happening in our world. There are roughly two camps of people and they're clashing yeah. over. It's not the good guys versus the bad guys per se, but there, but there is the clash of those two ideas. Is truth something outside of us that we are responsible to seek and to find and to live by? regardless of how we feel about it, or is there no truth? Everything is just an act of power and exercising power over other people. And so you're basically justified in doing whatever you want for, you know, the greater good. Right? Quote, unquote. Right? And Ethan Hunt right. represents one of those, and the entire intelligence community and the entity represent another. And it's brought home by the one agent guy who's like starting to question his orders. And they're they're just going around hunting Ethan because he's the guy they're supposed to be hunting. Right. And he's like, well, hold on a second. What if Ethan had a good reason to go rogue? Right. Like, what if he had a lot of good reasons repeatedly again and again? And, and then he goes, let me put it this way. What would you do if you had the power to, you know, destroy the world in your hands? And he goes, well, I guess I'd turn it into my superiors. Right. He's like, yeah, right. That's what you should do because you're subordinate. And that's right. what And he's like, unless the powers weren't trustworthy, then I think I might do what Ethan Hunt does. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? And he says, whose side are you on? And he goes, well, I guess I guess in the end of the world, I'm on everyone's side. Right. I'm on the side of life. I'm on the side of preserving humanity and not giving power to corrupt entities. Right, because power corrupts. Um, pretty deep stuff for an action movie. That's why it's the best. And I might have to revise my initial thesis that they just kind of added that. It, it has the feeling of frosting, uh -huh. because what they really are doing is a Mission Impossible movie, which the, that motif is written. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the, and the villains change again and again, and it's not like it's been a super consistent right. theme on this. But, but 
for, for what it is in this movie, they really are drawing on, they have a way of tapping into the most pertinent dilemmas facing their audience. Mm. And those for sure are the dilemmas facing their audience. Who can you trust mm. in a world dominated by misinformation and AI algorithms? How can you know it's true? Mm-hmm. And then that classic Mission Impossible thing, the team versus the mission. Yeah. So can we just put some closure on each of those yeah. questions, yeah. Carlin, and answer how do they solve it? So first of all, who can you trust? What's the purest answer Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning gives us, part one, gives us yeah. to who can you trust? I mean, trust? I said my answer. I kind of I kind of was thinking that maybe it has to do with if you're willing to sacrifice yourself for A, the greater good, mm. and B, for the team. Like the way Ethan says yeah. in, this, in this moment of self-sacrifice, I will always value your life above mine. Yeah. That seems to encapsulate it to me, but do you have another intuition? Well, no, I think that's right. I think they're just like, talk is cheap. Uh, mm. You prove who you can trust. Mm, okay, right? yeah. But uh, sometimes people need to be, their, their hearts are warmed by that act of selflessness from others. And it means reciprocal trust. Whereas one path deteriorates trust, like double-crossing your own team, right. you know, throwing them to the wolves for the quote-unquote greater good. That deteriorates trust yeah. when trust is actually the commodity we need the most. Yeah. Other actions build that trust, and the IMF uh, is constantly choosing to build trust with with the good guys, with the fellow good guys. Encapsulated by the the girl. I don't. Do we ever know her name? The Asian girl who like uses swords. Yeah, her her name is Paris. Oh yeah, Paris. She's French, um, mm-hmm. and she hardly says a word, and she's always against right. Ethan. But there's a moment right. where they have this brutal fight in that teeny little alleyway. And he right. can swing the death blow at her head, but he intentionally, right. he slams above her head. And the algorithm says, you're destined to betray me. Although it's funny because he doesn't say that until after Ethan yeah. pulls that mm. move. But he says, you're destined to betray me, so I have to kill you. Um, wow. And that's when Gabriel tries to kill her. But she survives and does betray the entity and goes to save Ethan and Grace. But you know what's interesting there is, and I think this is their comment on predestination too, now that I'm thinking about it. These lines happen so fast that in the moment you might not catch yeah. it. But I think what he's doing there is like, oh, it's written. The entity has said it. And so, but then with his actions, classic trope, he makes it come true. Whereas if he had kept trusting her, oh. maybe she wouldn't have betrayed him so you hard think so? at the end. You think so? Yeah, I, I think so. Even though she his be- had been extended uh, like grace, like uh, Ethan had saved her life already. Yeah, but we don't know what she would have done. The fact is, her boss betrays her first. Oh, uh, that's true. That's why he's the bad guy, you he's know? He's a bad guy. It's not hard. He's a bad guy. It's not hard to figure out. He's a bad guy. Um, so Interesting. What about that other theme? In a world dominated by misinformation, controlled by AI, how can you know it's well, true? Well, you got to go analog. Yeah, that's true. Just use some radio tubes. Mm-hmm. You're good. Um... <laughs> <laughs> The amount of computers they still use after they find out the enemy is a massive AI might be a plot hole. You know, like if AI is everywhere, it just takes a fraction of a second for it to truly be everywhere. And all technology is not going to work at that point. I hate to say it, but I think AI is kind of like time travel in film. It's like if we were to really follow all the logical conclusions through, there wouldn't be much of a plot. It ruins it. It ruins it. AI is too good of a bad guy. I'll just say that. For example... They're doing like that financial transaction on a cell phone. Are you kidding me? The AI is just going to let yeah, that happen? Right. Or, or, or the AI break. has to somehow be manifested physically by like this random pattern that we see 
that's clearly for like, us. Like, wow, AIs wow, wow, don't wow, wow, need wow. to have a visual representation in a room with, filled with screens in order to be fully present. Oh, and the naked people dancing. Oh, yeah, those naked people dancing. That's all AI. That, that's that got to be a trope. Yeah. Like, well, I'm so evil, I run a club where I have just naked, they're just <laughs> naked, and they're just dancing. Yeah, like Jabba the Hutt style. Um. There, that is a trope in the Mission Impossible. I should add this to my game. How many times do they go to a really hot party with all the strobe lights? <laughs> That's also in some, like one of the romance cities, like one of those beautiful old cities, like oh, yeah. Venice or whatever. It's like an Advent Gods Europe party <laughs> happening in the old ruins. Wow, you can really dance. That's real. Uh, I think the truth question, they just answer by saying the truth does... I mean, they don't really answer it, but it's clear what they're... They don't say it, but it's clear what their answer is. The truth exists. You know, like, whether or not AI controls the whole world, the truth just exists. They might have some line. Anyway, it's the same. It's the same answer. Ethan just never wavers to that mentality for a second. It's morality versus power, like you're talking about. And, and, And the Mission Impossible movies, they don't waver on it. Yep. How do they answer that question of the team versus the mission in a nutshell? Oh. If you were to wrap it up in a bow. Well, okay, here, here's a preponderance for you. I couldn't help but notice. A preponderance? I couldn't help but notice there was kind of a lot of biblical imagery, not new to cinema. Um, for instance, the cruciform key. Oh, cruciform key. Yeah, right. The cruciform key. That's, you know, a literal crucifix. It looks like a cross. Um <laughs> There was a couple other things like I they call Gabriel a dark messiah. Um, yeah. And then I couldn't help but wonder if they're kind of setting up Ethan as and I, I don't think it's in a, any kind of disrespectful or um, like sacrilegious way, but they're setting him up as like the virtuous hero who right. can who will never do wrong. He might stumble. He might. But he won't fail. Honestly, he's kind of miraculous. He's kind of like demigod like. In that he always comes through. Like, Grace is like, promise me you'll be on that train. And he 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 has this self-doubt that makes us love him. But he's going to get on that train. Like, we know right, he totally. is going to move heaven and earth to come through for his team. And he does. Right. And that's part of the world of the film. But there, it's almost like he's the savior of the team. And he's the one always laying his life down. And he's the one pulling it together. He's the one that needs to be consulted when there's riddles going on. He's the one calling the shots. And they all perpetually turn to him. And they like, they're like, Ethan's the guy. Like, he's our leader. He's the guy. So what are you saying? I'm saying that he's kind of like a proto-Christ. Well, he's the hero. And every hero is kind of a reflection of the Christ figure in some ways. Yeah, which I think is just baked into what we value in stories is we want to see the hero demonstrate sacrificial love by laying his life down for his team and hypothesis. I think he's going to die in part two. Interesting. But then they couldn't make any more. Well, they're not gonna, it's, this is the last one. I don't believe that for one second. Dead reckoning. Hugh Jackman said he was done being Wolverine and now look at him. They killed 007. They're going to kill Ethan Hunt, who is a fantastically superior hero. I think that the team versus the mission uh, is answered. I think you're right. It's by 
we're selfless. I'll lay down my own life, but I'm not going to exact your life. Yeah. You you choose to be here. I, that's probably the biggest piece oh, of it. You yeah, choose good. to join the IMF. Yeah this group of self-sacrificial heroes, whereas the villains are always extracting people's lives from them for, you know, the greater good. <laughs> the good guys are always <laughs> laying down their own lives. And there is a, a, a Christ-like uh, reference there. Yeah. I was just going to say this, and then we can get to our third section. The key being cruciform, silly or significant? Oh, significant. In in the How? way that it is. Like, I, I guess... I guess they're trying to make it significant in the sense that they're using biblical imagery to try to in 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 print on our brains that this is the most significant adventure we've had yet. I think that makes it to me silly. <laughs> <laughs> not not like actually like it's the MacGuffin they need. Yeah. Does the cruciform nature of the key mean anything for like how it operates? No. Well, the Saint Indiana Jones. But- but we, same in Indiana Jones, like the, <laughs> the exact nature of the MacGuffin might matter like in a small way, but it's different than like the one ring. The one ring is like, um, it's non-fungible. You can't, re- it, it's its own unique thing and its properties have a dramatic impact on the plot. Yeah. Yeah. The cruciform key is like, okay, we need two halves of the They thing. need a physical What's totem to represent their MacGuffin. It's a totem. And the fact that it's cruciform to me is silly in the sense that it's meant to evoke something in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I don't even fully know what that is. Like, you're right. They throw the biblical imagery around like it's, uh, what's something you throw around? ball. (laughs) Like it's rice at a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so we're just meant to be like, oh my gosh. Like either they took something sacred in there. They're playing with power they don't understand. It's a cruciform. You know, or we're meant to be like, um, I just, I don't know. It's just like, oh. I think it's set dressing. That's the, that's the reaction they're going for. I think it's set dressing. For. Am I allowed to say that? If you interact with it, it's a prop. If you don't, it's set dressing. And if you eat it, it's salad dressing. <laughs> Carlin. At long last, maybe we should transition to our third point. What does a Christian yeah, world you have I, to say about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning? Get there, I just want to say thank you for keeping us laser focused because I'm all over the map today. I'm just too excited. I know. Well, you you just worked a full night yeah, and took a nap in your car. Hours. 26 Came in hours. hot for This is your Mission Impossible. How are you doing this? Um, I, I don't know, but I'm going to do it just like Ethan Hunt. <laughs> I can see the processor <laughs> in your mind straining to... <laughs> All right. Uh, So one thing I want to make clear for our listeners, anyone who wants to like do film analysis, it's not like we're the experts. Clearly, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know, we're just sometimes shooting from the hip. Self-proclaimed experts. One thing that I find helpful, though, is it's not what a Christian worldview says about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. It's because then you sort of get corny, like, well, there's a cross and Ethan Hunt's the Christ figure. It's like that is true of every movie. You know what I mean? It's more about what does the movie say about life and then what does Christianity say about the same questions about yeah, life? Yeah, exactly. We've got to extract the themes first before we can apply any sort of worldview to them. Yeah, we've got to listen carefully to how the movie approaches those themes. We don't want to extract them where they aren't there. 
<laughs> we, you know, <laughs> we've got to infuse, you know, infuse meaning so that we can meaning. talk about it and sound smart. What were we saying about what were we saying about meaning? Like some movies you watch and you're just trying to like find the meaning <laughs> in the movies. Strain, strain. <laughs> There's well, meaning here to extract. We just we all know find that the it. Best way to have meaning in something is to just stare at it really hard and think about meaning. <laughs> but what's the m- meaning? I can see your eyes are like crossing, and there's steam coming out of your ears. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's all wrong. What you do is you you pay attention to the plot, you ask a few questions, and you try to listen to what the filmmakers are trying to the say. Filmmakers. The filmmakers. The filmmakers. The artists whose work we are interpreting. Tom Cruise, given his Scientology, see, he's so based in so I many ways. I forgot about that. But his Scientology might actually paint him as the Messiah figure. Yeah. <laughs> so in that way, art imitates life. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't want to think about whatever. that. I just want him to be no, a, good, no. a good actor and a dang good producer. He is. He is. We don't need to push that too hard. That's his one wacky trait. But it mostly happens off yeah, screen. We, so. That doesn't have to. See, the truth is being controlled for us. Right. Right. <laughs> so, Casey, what do you think? Um, what's a biblical worldview say about the theme of who can you trust? Uh, in one sense, a Christian worldview says you can trust no one because mm. our uh, the, there's the doctrine of total depravity, which doesn't mean that people are totally depraved or as bad as they could possibly be. It just means there's no part of our lives that isn't touched by evil, and the human nature is bent towards evil. Yeah. So in a sense, the Kittredges and the... Uh, Gabriel's of the world shouldn't surprise us because humanity's natural bent is towards evil. Yeah, that's a huge metaphysical commitment of the Christian worldview: is that we are not uh, inherently good people with a bad shell of society around us making us do bad things. Right, we're inherently bad people. We were created good, but it's all been warped, and so now yeah. our our intentions are evil. So, so who can you trust? I mean, I don't know if I don't know if we need to answer that because everyone has the capacity capacity of making choices that make them trustworthy or not. It doesn't matter who you are. You can choose to be trustworthy. Yeah. I think the the better theme from the movie is trust is about action, not about words. Talk is cheap. Yeah. Right? And uh, I just think scripture nails that point again and again and again, starting with Jesus's words at the Sermon on the Mount, where he's like, it's not about what you say, essentially. It's about what you do. Yeah. Right, you can you can say all these things. You can talk a good game, like you can have quote unquote righteousness before God. But if what you're doing is evil, then you're evil. Right. You know right. what I mean? And so the ultimate solution there for for humanity is to turn back towards God and say, "Sorry for the ways that we've done wrong. Help me do right." Yeah. You know. In in James, he says, um, "Like, you, what good is it if you say go be well and be fed to someone, but you don't right. feed them and you don't give them help? Like that—that's right. not really faith, actually, at all. It's faith without works right. is dead. Faith without works isn't even really faith. It's nothing. Right. And it's your works that demonstrate you have faith, because it's your faith that motivates your works. They're they're so intertwined that they can't. One concept doesn't exist without the other. Right. Jesus says, "Good tree." good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. You'll know the tree by its fruit. So if, if, if humanity is, is, 
corrupted by sin and we have evil desires, like the desires in our heart. And I think anybody who can't see this in themselves is lying to themselves that we don't right. see our, that living in our own hearts is the propensity to do evil or to hurt someone else or take something for our own gain. You don't have to look very far to find that in yourself. Um, you can minimize it because it doesn't feel good, but um, it's there. It's it's living in our hearts. Um, if the gospel acknowledges that, but it also lays this responsibility on you, but but it, you can't. Like it's impossible because your 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 desires are bent towards evil. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> people can choose to do good. There's the question of like, what is humanity capable of? in a limited sense. And there's a question of how do we get right with God? Mm. The question of how, like you doing some good stuff isn't enough to reconcile, reconcile you to your creator. It's going to your creator and saying, please forgive me, accept me on your terms, yeah. not yeah. mine. That's what reconciles you to your creator. So there's, there's like a, 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 like a salvation principle. Like how do we, how are we saved? How do we, how do we uh, have our the bad things we've done forgiven, right? So that's one element of Christianity. But there's also a moral principle at work. Um, whether or not you've, whether or not you're right with God, goodness just uh, works like that. Where like it's demonstrated by action, not just speak. Yeah. I just think one of the one of the most profound ways that this movie almost illustrates a Christian worldview is Ilsa giving her life and then Grace being just the undeserving recipient of mm. that level of kindness. Mm -hmm. And it changes her heart, right? I mean, in a nutshell, mm. that's what God did for us, right? And and he reversed the cycle of uh, cynicism and evil by selflessly giving himself for mm. us. So then the charge of every Christian is to be someone who selflessly gives themselves for everyone else. Yeah, right, right. right. That doesn't mean being a doormat, letting evil people walk all over you all the time. It just means not thinking of yourself as the highest good. Huh. Uh, so it strikes it, yeah. in the Psalms. It says he adorns the humble with salvation, mm. which oh, sums it up so in a, such a lovely way. But it's like all that's required for you to be redeemed is humility. So humility yeah. to say, okay, I was wrong before and I'm breaking with the old way and I'm choosing what's good. I'm breaking from yeah. selfish gain and I'm choosing self-sacrifice. You know, I'm breaking from mm. being a bad henchman and I'm joining with saving the good guys from certain death. Mm. Right. That happens with Paris, yeah. right? At the very end. Yeah, as she's it dying. takes yeah. humility. Very you cool. have to humble yourself to receive salvation, but it costs you, you know, nothing and everything. And then that spirit of humility is what you said. Like it creates action and it's that action that reveals the humility. It reveals the attitude change. Right. What about the other question? Uh, how do we know what's true? I think one of the main things I thought of watching this movie and thinking about the idea of truth is that truth is not just an intellectual proposition. Mm. To know the truth, you have to first want to know the truth. Mm. And that means truth is intrinsically tied up with morality. Okay, walk that right? back for me. What does that mean? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about you should like to this new group of brand new Christians, baby Christians. He's like you shouldn't be like the rest of the world and fallen humanity. And Ephesians says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
So there's a there's an element of like just not knowing. There's uh-huh. ignorance. But he says the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Huh. So our not knowing is often the result of us not wanting to know. We harden our hearts. Mm. And Paul says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. Wow. Right. Yeah. They're full of every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. So it's like humanity. Yeah. Some people are like, well, what I don't know, I don't know, you know, but it's like the first step of knowing the truth is wanting to know the truth. If you don't want to know the truth, no amount of getting bludgeoned by it is going to actually convince you, right? You have to want to know it first. So that's the message of scripture for the, for the human heart is like, do you want to know the truth? And I just see that throughout this movie. The good guys want to know what's true. Ultimately, the bad guys don't care. That's why you can say to the Nazis, I'm sorry, but you did know the truth and you chose to sin against humanity and cause all this devastation. No excuses. You hardened your heart. The scary part of that to me, Carlin, is that um, people are fully capable of hardening their hearts. Average people, normal people. um, You know, I was even going to say... The dominant belief in our world is that people are intrinsically good and it's just evil society, like systems of oppression that corrupt yeah. them, right? That's almost a, a Marxist, a neo-Marxist point of view. Yeah. There's some truth yeah. in it. There can be systems of corruption. But I was going to say a biblical worldview gives the exact opposite. It says people's hearts are bent towards evil and oftentimes it's society keeping them back from being the worst thing they could possibly be because huh. I have to live in a world with other people and if I steal and rob and kill then my life is forfeit. You know what I mean? So there's a selfish component where the selfishness of everybody else is checking the selfishness of everybody else. Society is often the brakes on the worst impulses of individuals. I was literally just listening to a podcast about um, sexual predators of the worst variety that you can imagine and how uh, the interviewer was saying they, they, they've talked to these people and they've like interacted with them and then found out what they did. Like they interacted with them in prison and then later found out oh, wow. what what they had done. Um, and he was just struck by the fact that they were so normal. That they just felt wow. like every average Joe Schmo on the street, like you would ne- they wouldn't stick out in a crowd. And and kind of the working theory amongst psychologists is that uh, someone who I mean, there are some people that are born without a, a moral sense of right and wrong. But for most people that end up becoming that depraved, it's just a series of stewing on uh, their feelings of neglect or anger or bitterness and then having fantasies that ride the edge of novelty. That they mm. they there's something about, you know, a fantasy of violence or a fantasy of whatever revenge. And they and they're all there has to be this edge of novelty to it. But that just is a downward spiral towards unspeakable mm. acts. And it could happen to anyone who lets themselves stew. Um, like it, it's like uh, what God says to Cain. Why then are you angry? Is it why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's that imagery crouching is like a like a lion, like a predator outside your door um, seeking to devour you. And and it, it, we all have that propensity. We all have those feelings um, and it's choosing to entertain them step by step. And you can end up becoming a monster like it, it could happen to any. And that is the doctrine of sin, right? That's the doctrine of total depravity that. 
any of us have this option. It's not the others out there. It's, it's a war we all fight in our hearts. Right. And it's not that people never do kind or selfless things, I believe, but it's, it actually is that given enough time and given enough opportunity, I, humanity will choose to take things as far as they can. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they just will. That's in all of our hearts. So we need something that can save us from that. Anyway, that's the met, that's the meta theme of, of Christianity is how are we saved from ourselves? Yeah. But Carlin, when it comes down to the team versus the mission, that question, what, what do you prioritize? And you were talking about how Tom Cruise is like, he, he does it. Like part of, part of the joy of these movies is that Tom Cruise just pulls it off. You know what I mean? Like against all odds, he does the right thing and there's not actually like devastating, horrible consequences that like break him. You know, it's like most of his team makes it. They have a sweet story to tell later. Chitty chin chin. Yes. And I would just say there's something in the human heart that longs for that. We want happy endings. Okay. And Mission Impossible taps into that. Like life isn't always like that. You need to have stories of heroes who lose everything and and maybe lose but they still do the right thing but Tom Cruise always wins in these movies and I think we long for ultimate reality to be like that Mm. and I would just say the good news is the story of scripture is that God wins and goodness wins Mm. and the good guys are gonna win you know what I mean there there are twists and turns but the outcome is assured and it's a good one the final destruction does not happen of the good guys the bad guys get their comeuppance. Yeah. yeah. All the double crossers. That's called justice. Yeah. But, and along the way, so many people who have chosen bad are able to find redemption and be yes. sa- be counted amongst the good guys. Right. I mean, they all are, right? They all start off like Luther and Benji. They're disavowed agents. Yeah. Right. But they get some redemption through joining the IMF. Yeah. Anyway, there's lots of themes there. Even if they're not talking about religion, they're, they're pulling at a thread that's in every human heart. We want redemption, yeah. and we want the good guys to win, and we want them to pull it off against impossible odds. And sometimes when I read the news and look at the world, I feel like the odds are impossible. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's where my faith gives me comfort. Yeah. Wow. That, that, it is a real hope, isn't it? So Mission Impossible, Carlin. Mission Impossible 10. <laughs> it's really actually Mission Impossible oh, 7. I'm sorry. One. I lost track because they were so good. <laughs> Touche. You know what the best double cross of this whole thing was? Hmm. It's when a Russian submarine double crossed itself. Aww. Can you imagine? What? A submarine <laughs> pulls off a mask and it's actually that. <laughs> it's, it's actually me, Gabriel. I was the submarine. All right. Hey, this has been hey. another amazing episode of Cinema Snorkel. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We did it. It was impossible, but we did it. <laughs>